The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The first thing they do is in 2017, when Daisy Kendrick is just out of college, they give her what is originally announced as a $5 million grant, and then she gets $3 million to a charity, a nonprofit that she had started like a year earlier, a really small, you know, charity didn't have the, you know, it listed to give you a sense of how small it was. When she incorporated it, she listed three directors, including herself. The other two directors told us later that they had never heard of it, didn't know they were part of it, barely knew Daisy Kendrick. That's how small this organization was. So the UN gives this group $3 million to raise awareness about the oceans, to produce a pop song, to produce a video game. So that was a, that was the strange. These people at the UN were like, you know, out of all the groups in the world that raise aware that you know have networks that know how to get awareness about the oceans, you gave three million dollars to a college grad, you know, just twenty three year old to do this. Why? And then after that, then they started giving loans to her father, eventually totaling fifty eight million, some to build renewable energy projects and some to build uh, houses. Mo- you know, the, the plan was to build like one point one million houses across the development. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, May 13th, 2022. David Farenthold is a reporter who works for The New York Times. In his capacity as a reporter at The Washington Post, he reported on misdeeds within the Trump financial universe. And now, he just came up with a story in The Times about a peculiar financial scandal at the United Nations. It's about a little-known UN agency trusting tens of millions of dollars to relatively unknown British businessmen and the investment not quite working out. I talked with David about his story and about the broader world at the United Nations that enables this to happen. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 13th, a scandal at the UN. Hey everyone, Lawfare Senior Editor Scott R. Anderson here with a quick interjection. Shortly after running this episode, we received a letter from lawyers representing David and Daisy Kendrick disputing some of the representations in the discussion that follows. To address their concerns, we've posted excerpts from that letter stating the positions of Mr. and Ms. Kendrick on this episode's show page on the Lawfare website. You can find a link in the show notes for this episode. Now, back to Jacob. We are going to dive into all the specifics as we go on, but just using using sort of vague titles, not actually using names... And at a very high altitude, maybe like 10,000 foot view, give us a quick overview of of what happened in the story. And then we'll sort of pick apart the specifics. What you had here was an agency at the UN that ended up with millions of dollars more than they needed or that they knew what to do with. And they 
decided they were looking around for something to do with this money. They wanted to invest it, which they had never done before. Uh, they met a guy at a party and they decided to give all to give $61 million to him or to his family. So they loaned him $58 million uh, to invest around the world. They gave his daughter a $3 million grant for her charity. And now everyone regrets that. Uh, at least $22 million that they loaned him has been declared bad debt, uh, defaulted, and the number could go up. The investments seem to have ended in tragedy, and the UN has fired or asked for the resignation of the person who oversaw it all. So I think maybe the best place to start is with the office itself. So what on earth is, is the UN Office for Project Services? Basically, it was designed to be the UN's general contractor. So, it, it, you know, a lot of agencies at the UN have money and want to do things, you know, good things in the world. This, the idea was, why don't we have one agency at the UN that knows how to do logistical tasks, build a road, build a house, you know, diffuse landmines. They're the people who know the guy who builds the house in Yemen. They know the guy who builds roads in Ghana. And so that any other UN agency that wanted to do logistical tasks would hire these people and they would get it done. Now, this that's like a really important job. And they by all accounts, do it well. But what we ran across was that in the UN system, the sort of prestige in the UN, they don't have a lot of prestige because prestige comes from giving out grants, from giving out money, standing at podiums, giving orders, and these guys take orders. You know, they're the ones who do, not the ones who talk. And talking at the UN is the key. And so we, it seemed like they, had, they wanted to be more visible. They didn't want this kind of behind the scenes role as good at it as they were. And so historically, like when they're functioning in, in their best capacity, like maybe give an example of like what what's something that they could do or what's like a, a oh, big yeah. success that they've had. So uh, some of their biggest successes include delivering medicine, delivering, um, you know, hospital supplies, medical supplies to places around the world, building roads uh, all over Africa, building roads, you know, in developing countries all over the world, building schools. You can look at their website. It's there's dozens and dozens of projects all around the world where they're building things. I mean, they, they seem to be good at that, but the problem was that that wasn't good enough for them. And you you mentioned a bit in your your first answer there that there's all these sort of different funding streams at the UN, right? And different UN agencies have money, and they you know they they want to do something with it. Talk just in in sort of general terms for people who aren't as familiar of like how the money side of the UN works, because I think that's important here. Like, where is this money coming from? How does it end up? at different agencies, like what level of discretion do different agencies have over where it goes, stuff like that. I am new to the UN, so I understand this at the 10,000 foot level. I'll give you that. If I go any lower, I will get it wrong. Basically, UN member states pay dues to the UN. And they also, if you're you know, the US or China or a particularly wealthy member state, you can add extra money into specific agencies to do the things that you want. So everybody's heard of like UNICEF, that's a UN agency, UN Development Program, they help people, you know, they do development projects around the world. So the money goes from countries, taxpayers in various countries, to those UN agencies like the Development Program or UNICEF. And then it would go, they would then basically contract with this other agency, UN Office for Project Services, they'd hire them like a contractor, and then pay them the cost of the contract, the cost to build the road or build the school or whatever. And then the Office Project Services would add a fee on top, a management fee was like 5%. And that's why they ended up with so much extra money is because they were charging their, their brother or sister agencies a bigger management fee than they really needed. And so, and historically to the people who are on the other side of that contract, the people who the, the Office of Project Services contract, they're, they're just people who are 
maybe networked to the UN, right? They're, they're like for-profit companies, right, on the other side of this? Yeah, there would be, you know, you know, somebody, a company that builds roads in one of these countries. And so the UN Office of Project Services would have that relationship, make sure that was a good, reliable contractor. And so then you know, the UN, every time a UN agency wanted to build roads in Ghana, they wouldn't have to go through like reinventing the wheel of finding the best company to do that. Right. So I think your story part of what's made it get so much traction is it's very like personality driven story. There's yeah. a lot of big characters in here. So I think maybe the best place to start from the personality side is, is in that office. So in the UN office on project services. So introduce us to the, the people who are the, the main players in, in the story, just within that office first. The head of the agency was a woman named Greta Faramo. She had been a politician in Norway. She was the defense minister of Norway, the justice minister of Norway, sort of a big deal in Norwegian politics. And she'd come to this UN agency and it seeming determined to sort of make a name for herself there. She wrote a whole essay in Harvard Business Review about how there, you know, she had basically, you know, been opposed by naysayers and anti-capitalists in her agency, but she's, you know, she pushed past that and, you know, powered through. And, you know, she said like, I threw 1200 pages of rules in the trash because I felt like they were too rule bound. So that's, that, that's her ambition is to be seen as like, a, you know, someone who's running the UN like a business an innovative manager inside the UN. Her number two is a guy named Vitaly Venshobon, who's a, a Ukrainian. He'd been in the UN forever and also a healthy sense of confidence for him. He was not much of a public facing person, but was sort of regarded when the UN as like a exacting financial genius. And one, one person told us that, you know, other employees take beta blockers, the pressure, blood pressure medication, just to talk to him. I mean, to me, the thing that sums up him best is him, his own words, his LinkedIn profile and his Twitter bio are both written in all caps and it begins serial overachiever. So that that's the sort of sense of confidence he has in his management ability. So th these are two people who run kind of a, a grubby, important, but low profile agency, but they are not low profile people. Their ambition is not just to do this grubby job well. They want something more. Yeah. And so how did they translate that into changing the way the agency operated? Well, I was really surprised. I guess I'm used to dealing with the U.S. government where there's a lot of, you know, the head of an agency doesn't have a huge amount of control over how, how money is spent. You know, it's legislated by Congress. There's rules and regulations. The U.N. is much less rule bound than you would think. So this was their agency and they had been charging other agencies more money than they needed. And they got to like a hundred million dollars of extra money, like just surplus. And they didn't know what to do with it. And so these two officials basically decided uh, and, and, you know, and their auditors and other people in the UN are like, just, you know, charge less fees, give the money back. Like, well, you, this is not your money. Why do you, you, you don't need a hundred million extra dollars. You, you deserve, you're a contractor, but they want, they want what other people in the UN have, which is their own pot of money, their own ability to give out grants and sort of stand, you know, cut a ribbon, sign a contract. So they decide that they're going to start loaning it out like a bank. That's their plan is they're going to start loaning out this operational reserve for because they have a hundred million dollars and they really think they only need 20 or 30 as really like a is a real surplus as a check against you know bad debts or rainy days so they're going to start loaning out the rest like a bank and that's something the un has never done and so that would in theory that would take them from the back rank the less less prestigious part of the un to the front now they're the first investment bank working with the private sector and they say that like you know greta Ferramo, the head of it in her essay at harvard business review is like you know, people said in our agency said it was a bad idea. Those, they don't like capitalists. They think capitalists are mercenaries. Like we're going to show them all they were wrong, you know, and show them we were right. 
and so what did they right they end up with this huge pot of money and then there's this sort of what do you what do we do with this question and how did they go about resolving that well they needed somebody to give this money to but we're talking about people that have really no experience they have lots of experience in government and at the UN but they don't really have any experience in the private sector and what they want is not something that the like they're they are purposefully targeting projects that are sort of marginal for the private sector that they're not going to spend money to build a cell phone business or to like sell coca-cola in india or you know pick pick something that the private sector would do because it would be obviously a money maker they're there to do things that are like development projects what they want to do is build renewable energy uh, installations they want to build housing in the third world to be clear, this is how like most of the UN operates, right? This is the goal of large parts of the UN, right? Totally. They're, but they're going to do it. Everybody else does it through grants. They're going to do it through loans. So you're going to, the idea is to, 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 to solve, to like make development into a money-making process. So they're, they're inexperienced and they're also aiming for a tiny slice of the business community. People who, who think they can, who want loans from the UN and want to deal with the UN's bureaucracy and think they can make money doing things that are develop, basically development projects, not you know, pure money making. So it's a hard job to begin with. And I think they spend a lot of time looking for people who will take their money and, and who, who want to get into, you know, get into this with them and have trouble finding it. And so then they come across this guy, David Kendrick at a party. And he says, that's exactly what I want. I have a company that can build projects all over the developing world. You know, you're just the people for me. And I think they were, they said, well, thank God, you know, because if you look at their auditor's reports, there's no indication that they compared this company to that company and they were looking at different offers and thinking about diversifying. Maybe we should invest with this company and a little bit with that company. When they found this guy, they were like, oh, thank God, take all of our money. Uh, and they gave they really gave him $58 million in the span of 18 months. So before we get back to Kendrick, you, you made that distinction between right grants versus loans. And most of the UN is, is doing things via grants. Talk a bit about like how does that skew the the recipient pool, right? Like who are the people, who are the organizations or the people who tend to be interested in getting grants versus like, you know, what is the profile in, in general, maybe stereotyped terms of someone who wants this type of loan, right? Like why does that distinction matter? Well, it, it's because you're looking at people who think they can make a profit. You know, you're looking for people who, who don't just want to take the money and build a road or build a school or whatever. You're looking for people who think they can they can make a profit. And so that's a small sector of people who are trying to build houses. It's, it's, this is a hard job to build houses in the developing world. You know, the payback on these projects would come by people, you know, like you build houses in Ghana, people, you know, people in Ghana buy them from you which requires setting up a mortgage system. Mortgage systems in other countries are not as easy to use as they are in the US. So you're looking for somebody who thinks they can navigate that system and take your loan, build houses and make money in a, in a not in just in one country, in a whole, they, they, they were thinking about seven or nine countries. So you're going to master the legal system and the political connections you need in Antigua to build houses and sell them and make money. And then also do it in Ghana and do it in India, places that really have nothing in common. They were looking for somebody that probably didn't exist a company that had that kind of ambition, but didn't already have backing and had no connection to other funding sources and would, would want to deal with the UN. You know, one of the reasons other people didn't want to deal with the UN is you can't sue the UN, right? And so, you know, you, why would you want to get in a, a business partnership alone with somebody that you can't sue if it goes wrong? So, you know, you can, you can see how we're starting to narrow down even further the set of people who might think this is worth their while and also who might think that they could actually make money on a project like this. Right, so sort of desperate and hopelessly ambitious people. Are sort of- yeah, it would have to be somebody who would like 
had a huge amount of ambition and nobody else to back them. So yeah, you're looking at people who are kind of by definition long shots. And so they end up with this with this guy Kendrick. Talk to us about so who is this guy? Who maybe talk a bit about the person who introduced them and why is like what is the profile of this man? Well, I guess I'll start with the introduction because the introduction gives you a sense a little bit of who we're dealing with here. You know, the person who introduced them tells you about who's being introduced. So the introducer in this case was a guy named Paolo Zampoli. He is most famous as the person who introduced Donald Trump to Melania Trump back in the day because Paolo was a modeling executive for whom Melania worked at the time. He knew Trump well. He worked for Trump for a while. This is a guy who's his, he's originally Italian. His fortune comes from the fact that his father introduced the Easy Bake Oven to Italy. So then he has come to the U.S. many years ago. He's a U.S. citizen now. He's been kind of a man about town. He's had a man about town jobs. He was a, a sort of very high-end realtor. He was a modeling executive. He hosted parties. Yeah, he's sort of a, you know, if you know the New York tabloid, sort of a page six staple, somebody who dated models. And, you know, was, he now has this weird world where he is an ambassador to the United Nations from the island of Dominica. The, not the Dominican Republic, the Dominica, little island of the Caribbean that he became uh, an ambassador, not the ambassador, but one of their ambassadors to the UN. That gets him access to this whole social world of the UN. At the same time, he's also taking side projects that are just for profit. And so at the time that the introduction was made, he was a UN ambassador. He could go to the UN parties. He's part of the UN, but he also was using his connections to introduce UN people to this guy, David Kendrick, who Kendrick is is a British man, mostly lives in Spain, is a very small public profile for somebody who has supposedly been in business as long as he has. He's involved in, you know, more than a couple dozen companies that all sort of interlock. Most of them flow up through shell companies to a family office in Gibraltar, the British territory. The main thing that they seem to do, he's dabbled in, you know, the record business and a bunch of other stuff. The main thing they seem to do is is construction. They have um, this process that supposedly allows you to build fast, sturdy, cheap houses you know, and in other structures too, and in, in mostly into the developing world. So I, I, I spent a lot of time and uh, I, I have to go to the expenses today, at least a thousand dollars on corporate records from places like Spain, Gibraltar, um, Singapore, where all his companies are looking for like, where's the money? You know, how does, where, where's the fortune? Where's the success? And he certainly has companies that have made losses. And the UN said that the main partner company they did business with had lost like $20 million the year years before. But I can't see his whole business because part of it is so opaque. So I don't know how successful he is, but he um, was somebody who was in the business that the UN desperately wanted to be in, building homes in the, in the developing world. And then thanks to Paolo Zampoli, they met him at a party. The, the heads of this UN agency, agency met Kendrick at a party in 2015. And so what comes after that? What is so they give him this this substantial amount of money and also give his daughter some money, right? Well, yeah, it starts with his daughter. And that that honestly was what drew us into this story because this part seems so strange. So this UN agency, the Office for Project Services, had never given out any grants before in its history. Remember, it just it does stuff, it doesn't give money away. So the heads of this agency meet David Kendrick and his daughter Daisy, who is uh, I think like 21 at the time, a college student still, at this party in 2015. And they give this the first thing they do is in 2017, when Daisy Kendrick is just out of college, they give her what is originally announced as a five million dollar grant. And then she gets three million to a charity, a nonprofit that she had started like a year earlier, a really small, you know, charity didn't have the, you know, it listed to give you a sense of how small it was when she incorporated it. She listed three directors, including herself. 
The other two directors told us later that they had never heard of it, didn't know they were part of it, barely knew Daisy Kendrick. That's how small this organization was. So the UN gives this group $3 million to raise awareness about the oceans, to produce a pop song, to produce a video game. So that was a, that was the strange. These people at the UN were like, you know, out of all the groups in the world that raise aware that you know have networks that know how to get awareness about the oceans, you gave three million dollars to a college grad, you know, just a twenty three year old to do this. Why? And then after that, then they started giving loans to her father, eventually totaling fifty eight million. Some to build renewable energy projects and some to build uh, houses. Mo- you know, the, the plan was to build like one point one million houses across the developing world. And did that happen? No, not at all. Not a single house has been built anywhere, um, which is amazing. They targeted, they gave him loans for seven countries. Not a single house was built. Not a single renewable energy project was built. They did spend some money to buy a wind farm in Mexico, an existing wind farm. But apparently that did not go that well either because the UN in 2020 began asking for its money back and Kendrick's company didn't give it back. And explained, apparently, according to auditors, the wind farm, even the one, the one sort of physical thing they had bought uh, was losing money. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And so have there been, right, aside from you writing the story in the Times, like what has been the sort of accountability cycle here? Right? Has, it, has there been an audit? Right? Did the audit go well? Like do we have any sense of whether there are going to be repercussions? Like, is there any sort of backtracking accountability? Well, before we wrote about it, this actually was surprising to me. The UN has a really good audit system. There's a board of auditors that looks over the books of this agency every year, and they write out a long list of recommendations. It's a really diligent process. But I guess nobody has to listen to them. uh, Because starting in 2019, they start warning like, hey, you're doing this wrong. You're violating your own rules about how money should be used. You're not you know, you shouldn't give all your money to one person. And nobody seems to have cared about it at all. And certainly nobody. So the the UN agency, those executives didn't seem to do anything about it. They have a board of diplomats from other countries who doesn't seem to take any action about it. It was only at the end of last year, something happened, we don't still know what, that caused them to put Mr. Vanchelborn, the number two person at this agency, on administrative leave. Quietly, they didn't, didn't tell anybody about it at the time. And then a, a, a guy at the UN, a blogger, a former UN official who's a blogger who's widely read there, starts writing about it in March. And then the agency starts talking more about it. Then they start sort of producing a little more accountability. But it was only after we wrote the story that the head of the agency, Greta Faramo, was was asked to resign. And even then, so the, the UN has done, a, has done an investigation of this. But they won't even show, which is over, they finished the investigation, but they won't even show it to like the American mission to the UN. I mean, it's, it's not like it's 
not just like it's not just me that doesn't have it or the public that doesn't have it even america you know one of the un's biggest funders can't get a copy of it so it doesn't seem like even now there's a huge effort to provide some transparency about what went wrong so i want to take a bit of a step back and like think about right aside from this is really interesting you know there's there's all sorts of swanky parties and interesting people here like there are also a bunch of like structural problems, right, that this hints at, and I think structural problems largely within the UN. So the first of which is you you mentioned this a bunch of different times. There's this sort of like prestige hierarchy within the UN. Like I, that might be something that seems a little strange to people who know less, and, and even to me, like it I, not something I give a lot of thought to. Talk a bit about like what is that, and how does that sort of, as best you can tell, like inflect the way that business gets done at the UN. So from what we've been told, there's a real sort of sense of personality. I mean, these are not personalities that you or I would know, you know, the people who are the undersecretary generals and the assistant secretary generals who head the various UN agencies. These are people that you've never heard of, but in their world, they're like gods. They are incredibly powerful. There's no mechanism of accountability for them outside of, you know, the, the secretary general, Antonio Guterres could fire them, but there's very little accountability for them. And within their agency, you know, there is a real disconnect between the people at the top and then everybody else who does their bidding. And so the people at the top, what we had heard was there was this culture of impunity where they could say whatever they want, they could give whatever orders and people would follow. And their incentives, the people at the top, is not to spend money wisely, not to to sort of be most efficient. It's to gain prestige in this world of the diplomats where they where they live. It's funny, my wife worked at the World Bank for a while, and it was very similar. You know, there are these people who are sort of like mid-level managers, but you and, you know, even somebody who, like, like me who'd been in Washington for a long time, covered politics, I'd never heard of these people. But in their world, they were like gods jockeying for power, um, you know, and, they, and their images mattered a lot. And a lot of money was spent to burnish their image. And so in this case, at this UN agency, you see sort of an extreme example where when these people wanted to spend this much money, there was no one underneath them who felt like they could challenge them. And the above them, people are sort of too distracted or like not motivated to, to be a watchdog over this money. So the, the, in that world, this ground they occupy gives them a huge amount of latitude to do whatever they want without being challenged. And you mentioned too that there's this weird implicit hierarchy between the sort of very public facing, you know, speech giving figureheads versus the sort of more internal, you know, maybe traditionally bureaucratic, like moving money around, like thinking yeah. seriously about what to do with grants. Like, what do you mean by that? Like, what's the what's the sort of upshot of that weird duality? Well, it, it to me, it doesn't seem like it's sort of something that has concrete elements or that, you know, there's like a, you know, it's not like these people have a, a yearly evaluation with the secretary general where he sits down and says like, you know, you've been meeting expectations or not meeting expectations. It's a, it, the the prestige comes from, being on stage, being at a podium, being the one that everyone's paying attention to, both because those are the people who have the money and can make things happen, who can claim successes, but also because that is like a, you know, it's the, the that in that world, visibility is really important. And so the that's why this agency, as important as it was and as big as it was, I mean, it was one of the biggest UN agencies and certainly one of the most, it, it caused the most things in the world to change outside of UN headquarters they saw themselves as, quote, the silent partner because they weren't up there on stage. And you see the the, the the sort of desire to be on stage so much that Greta Fermo, the, the head of this agency, as part of the contract, she gives $3 million to this charity started by a 23-year-old to write a pop song about the oceans. 
part of the deal is that she, the head of the UN agency, wants to sing the song. She wants to go in front of the entire UN General Assembly during Conference on the Oceans. She flies a backing band in from the UK. She wants to sing the song. So like that's the desire to be in front, noticed, paid attention to. Uh, it, there's no there's no glory that comes in doing just doing the work behind the scenes. And how does that relate to you know part of this part of your story is this sort of weird sceney world of parties and of, of people like you know this man who's somehow the ambassador from Dominica to, to a country that he has no discernible connection to. Like how do those two things relate to one another? This sort of obviously sketchy thing that's happening and this you know weird hierarchical visibility game that's being played. Well, I, I think that because of that, the sort of reward structure we're talking about is so intangible. It's a, it's more social and uh, and sort of PR related than anything that's like written down. The world of these parties actually like it, it, it makes a big difference. And so, you know, there are two different people in this story that were sort of like professional party hosts or important party hosts for the UN. One is a woman named Gloria Starkin. She's covered. She's a journalist who's covered the UN since 1957. Uh, runs. She's 95 now. She she has this huge apartment on the Upper East Side. People go there for you know UN parties. I've never been to one of these parties. They don't look like a lot of fun. There's always a part in which a bureaucrat stands up and everyone has to listen to them talk about their latest initiative. Um, and it seems like everybody is sort of pumping each other for money or information. Um, but Paolo Zampoli too. This is a guy who like his actual function at the UN is fairly small. Like even the Island of Dominica is not very big. He's not even the main ambassador for the Island of Dominica. So like on paper, he carries very little weight, but he hosts parties, he connects people. And these people at the, at the UN Office of Project Services said like, we were surprised to find that this guy who seemed like so peripheral, he was getting big guests at his parties. He had a nice apartment. Like he was somebody who convened people together. And so he had this status that was far greater than his actual title would would show because he connect because he, he gave you as an up and coming UN person a chance to be at a party with the secretary general or somebody else. And is it your sense that like these people, you know, these conveners, like are they doing actually important work for the UN, right? Like are they, do they have this role because the UN is like maybe more informal and like there's fewer formal channels for like, or is it just like, it's a scene just like any, you know, elite political scene and, the, and these people are the the conveners. Uh, that's a good question. I mean, the UN is, I mean, obviously designed to be a lot of talk, you know, and a little bit and less action. So like talking is an important thing of what they do. And then if you bring people together, I guess that's, that helps. But like Paolo Zampoli, his dream and like the way that he sees himself changing the world is starting a group called We Are the Oceans, which he describes as, he says, Watto is the NATO of the ocean. That's his goal. Not that will like arm the sea creatures, but it, it will be like a powerful alliance of governments. And that thing, he's talked about it a lot, but it's never gotten off the ground. You know, so the thing that he wants, the way that he imagines projecting power hasn't actually happened, but he still, you know, has this sort of informal role. And I, I, I do think that, you know, maybe for somewhat for good, but also in a way that wastes a lot of time, the UN is about these sort of social interactions rather than, you know, the actual business of the UN. I mean, I wonder, like, you know, reading the story and sort of doing some prep for this podcast, I kept thinking about your old beat, right? Your old beat was sort of the, the Trump financial, I'll let you characterize it however you think it's best, but sort of the Trump financial underworld, right? Like, how does this feel similar, different to that? Like, how does reporting on this feel similar, different to that world? Because right? in a lot of ways, it 
there's some things that feel pretty similar, but then in certain important other ways, there are some differences. Well, it, it, I mean, this, in this case, the Paolo Zampoli is like an, an important character in the world of Trump. I mean, he, he was sort of, you know, he was a part of the Trump business. He was, he introduced Donald and Melania. So it was, there actually was this like one guy who overlapped from the two of them. The thing that I found similar was that there was, you know, the money was given to people ostensibly for a business purpose, but really there was no way you could look at this and say that it was the rational or correct business choice. And I felt like that was the the same dynamic we confronted a lot covering Trump's business while he was president, which was like, you know, nominally he's getting business transactions from, you know, various people who want, you know, people who are in town to do, do business with, with, or a good example, when Trump was president, uh, T-Mobile needed a m- approval for a big merger it was doing with Sprint. And as soon as they announced the merger, a whole bunch of T-Mobile executives came to the Trump Hotel, stayed at the Trump Hotel, like literally loitered around the Trump Hotel lobby in D.C. wearing their all magenta T-Mobile tracksuits. And and it, that was the same thing. And that like, yes, nominally there was a business purpose, that nominally there was a rationale, um, but there's obviously an effort to like ingratiate yourself with people who have real power. And I, I felt like we were... That was the same dynamic we were confronting here that like, you know, the people at the UN say, look at, you know, we thought it made sense to give this guy the money, but it really didn't. And so you're trying to figure out well, what's the real explanation for it. And did the reporting process feel similar to this sort of like Trump reporting process? I mean, it's similar in that you're dealing with a highly secretive organization that where people, you know, you have to call 100 people to get one person to talk. That that was definitely true. I mean, some of these people did, Paolo Vimpoli talked to us a lot, but getting people inside that UN agency, because there's such a, like, either you're a UN lifer and you don't, you don't want to speak up or, you know, people move out of the, even people who've left this agency have left it to go to an, a field that was adjacent to it and don't want to burn any bridges. So it was hard to find people who, who knew enough about this organization's actions to talk about it, you know, in detail, but were far enough away that they were willing to talk about it in detail with their names attached. And that I spent, that was, that felt a lot like covering the Trump organization. It's like, you know, you cover the Trump or, you know, you worked at the Trump organization, you hated your experience there, but now you work at a rival hotel or you work at a, you know, you know, you know, golf course assessment company or whatever. So, you know, you're less, even though you don't like Trump, you don't want to burn your bridges in the industry because, you know, these are often small industries and the UN adjacent world is actually quite small. Um, so that, that, that felt very similar. And I wonder, like, is your reaction after having reported this story and, you know, gotten some sense of what this UN world is like, is the reaction that like, okay, you know, this is political corruption of of one stripe or another, like exists within the the high echelons of all sorts of different, you know, elite political worlds, whether it be the UN or, you know, the, the Trump administration or any US presidential administration, or is it your, like, you know, you report this story and it's like, whoa, there are some particularly bad things happening at the UN, or there's some particular pathologies on display here. To me, it 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 felt, you know, so I've written a lot about waste in the US government, you know, and like trying to find out when you find a really wasteful example of US government spending to try to figure out where it came from and who was supposed to be watching it. So the UN was on a different scale both because they have a lot more money and because there's even less accountability. I mean, people say Congress isn't accountable. People say, you know, these U.S. government agencies that waste a lot of money aren't accountable, but they are. I mean, they, there's people who ultimately could cut off their funding. There's people, there's voters who could throw them out of office. So it, it was like that that dynamic, the wastefulness of a big government bureaucracy on steroids, because this was like, what, even these people were even further away from the people whose money it was. And who might actually impose like some kind of accountability over them. 
And it, it did make me think that there's probably a lot more of this at the UN because it is so removed from anybody who would be like, hey, that's my money. What are you doing with it? And it also feels pretty removed from like formal rules, right? Like you have this this guy who is at once the ambassador from a country to the UN, but he's also right. Like he's not from that country. Yeah, he's not from that country. He's very publicly pursuing like business opportunities by dint of his role at the UN, right? That seems that that also feels like different. Yes, totally. I mean, by the way, his wife is a Brazilian model who is the U.S. UN ambassador from a, a country where she's not from, the island of Grenada. Yeah, it's a place where, yeah, it's sort of like a Congress in that, like, you know, everybody in Congress has been, has gotten somebody's sign off to be there. They're representing somebody and you could point to who they're representing, but not really because Paulo, like, he, he has a diplomatic, you know, permission from someplace, but he's really representing himself. It's not like he's accountable in the same way to the, the country of Dominica that a member of Congress is accountable to his, you know, his voters. So yes, it, there are, there's ways into this world where you can kind of buy or wheedle that access, um, which makes it even more confusing and even less accountable. And so to, to the extent that you feel like there are any sort of big takeaways from this, I, want, I think probably the, the best place to end is sort of thinking, thinking those through, like, what do you feel like looking back on this? Like, what is, what strikes you as like the biggest you know, structural takeaway, accountability focus takeaway, maybe bookkeeping takeaway, anything like that. <laughs> well, I'll give you like a, a like a UN account, UN takeaway, and then a takeaway from me as a reporter. The takeaway from the UN is just that there's there's so much money there um, and so much good intentions, but there's so little policing at the UN. There's so little oversight. That's what surprised me is it, it was not like these people were hiding what they were doing, that they were hiding, they'd given all their money to this guy. You know, they were public about it and they were getting putting out audit reports every year. But somebody has to care enough to, to call you on it. And nobody did. In fact, when we even when we talked to people who were you know, the overseers, the diplomats who were supposed to be watchdogging the money, even they were sort of like, oh, I don't know, is it that bad? You know, they they one of the lines in the story was they even after it all went bad, after everybody knew they'd lost at least twenty two million dollars or they were expecting to lose twenty two million dollars. The UN overseers were like, well, give us a full report on this in June 2024. You know, so if that's the way that that's what happens, even when you screw up on a massive scale, like what's happening when, when people are just being wasteful at a smaller scale. And I, I felt like the, the UN is sort of ripe for that kind of accountability. So I'm hoping we can do more stories like this. Just as an aside, the journalistic takeaway from this is that it was an, it was an example of you should never leave any person uncalled, even person, even anybody, anybody. So the way we cracked the, the party part of this was that, so Daisy Kendrick, we knew about her charity. We got a copy from the New York secretary of state of its incorporation papers. And it listed Daisy Kendrick and these two names we'd never heard of Gloria Kins and Rami Azuri. And looking at that, you probably thought, well, these are like Daisy's friends or they're, they're, they're accomplices in this in some way. But we called them anyway. And it turned out that they had, as I said, they had no idea what was going on. They had, they had no idea that they were involved with this or that they barely even knew Daisy. But the great thing was that they knew other stuff that we had no way of finding out otherwise. They were like, well, did you know about this party? Did you know I was at the party? Here's what happened. You know, so the lesson of like, don't ever assume you know what somebody's going to know or that somebody's gonna, not going to be able to be useful. You got to call everybody. Because uh, those two people who were not at all what they were supposed to be on the form still were so valuable for us. I mean, just as an example, we were trying to figure out at this party. So supposedly D uh, David Kendrick meets the UN people at this party in 2015. And 
we were, I was trying to figure out like, oh, how am I ever going to confirm that? Right. How, how will I prove these, you know, these people met at this specific party? And if I, even if I can prove they met, how can I prove they're meeting for the first time? And so we were, we got Gloria, Gloria Starkins, the person who hosted the party was so mad that she, her name had been listed as a director of this charity that, you know, she'd never heard of that. She was like, well, here, you know, look at these party picks that I took at this party. And you can see in the sequence of, of there's actually a photo of Greta Faramo, the head of the UN agency, holding a business card for the David Kendrick's company. And she's turned it, you know, not on purpose, but she's holding it so that you can see the logo on the business card. And if we didn't have that, I wouldn't have been confident enough to know that was the party they met at. But so like that was an example of, you know, call everybody, even if you think even if you think they may not be helpful, you don't really know until you call them. And that is a good story to end on. David, thank you so much. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our subscribers. Today, May 13th, Benjamin Wittes will be sitting down with two experts to discuss the latest intelligence community transparency report. What does it tell us and what do we still not know? Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, The Aftermath, and coming soon, Al- Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Allies, a podcast about the special immigrant visa program and the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And while you're at it, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Pajahau, and your audio engineer this week was Isabel Kirby McGowan. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>